I can cast a huge fly off the end of a, a long belly line that has a fine front taper if I can keep tension in the line all the way through the cast. And one of the best demos I ever saw about this was Albert, where he was showing he had a piece of line between his hands and it's loose and he's just kind of shaking it around and he's like, you know, how will this go through the, the wind? That was Bruce Kruk talking about the importance of tension in your spay cast. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show today. Bruce Kruk is on the podcast to share some of his best tips on casting long belly lines and even longer rods. We find out which uh, book Bruce believes is hands down the best for spay. Hint, the author has not yet been on this podcast. Uh, We hear about the Red Shed Spay Clave and why it's so impactful. And find out about uh, underhand casting, Skagit style, and what longer spay uh, rods all have in common. There's uh, something you can do with all those and and be a uh, successful spay caster. Uh, Please share this episode if you find value today with one other person. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Since 1977, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has long been considered the Angler's Magazine, with original how-tos and technical articles written by the best trout and steelhead anglers in the West. They are committed to sharing exceptionally written essays, fiction, poetry, and in-depth guides to fly tying and fly fishing. FTJ is one of my go-to magazines, and if you haven't checked it out recently, you can get started today by calling 1-800-541-9498 or heading over to the web at ftjangler.com. Gotfishing.com is your trusted source of information with access to the world's best fishing trips. You'll never pay a dime extra for the trip you book, and in many cases, less than advertised. Find out where Got Fishing could take you by heading over to gotfishing.com today. That's gotfishing.com or reach them by phone at 208-630-3373. Gotfishing.com, the easiest place to start your next fishing adventure. So without further ado, here is Bruce Kruk. How's it going, Bruce? I'm good. How are you, Dave? Good. Thanks for coming on and chatting here. We're going to we're going to dig back into a little bit on a topic that we've talked a lot about uh, on spay because you know that's a struggle for a lot of people out there. And also we're going to get back into the Upper Columbia River. So, um, before we get there, can you just talk about how you first uh, got into fly fishing and how you brought that into uh, spay and the spay ram and everything else? Uh, well, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> uh, you know, go go as far back as you think, or you know, before before fly fishing and, and when you started. Yeah, well, of course, uh, I loved fishing as a kid. Uh, my dad worked for a railroad company up here in Canada, and we moved around a lot. And uh, one of the last places we ended up as a young adult was Quebec, and. Uh, you know, I fished a ton as a kid, but then later on, as I got older, I got interested in motorcycles and girls and stuff like that. So I kind of left that for a while. And uh, I got married and bought a house. And it was on the end of an island. And uh, one time we were stuck in traffic driving home and saw a bunch of smallmouth bass jumping in this little park in the river there. And I was like, you know, I should get back into fishing. So I 
I got back in hard into with gear. And then uh, I always wanted to fly fish as a kid, but I just couldn't afford it. And uh, so I got into that hard also. And uh, the job that I had at the time, I was just managing a company where I had a lot of free time. So basically, I was fishing every minute I could. And that was for bass mostly? Yeah, that was for bass. And then uh, I started doing some Atlantic salmon stuff. But then I found out about the steelhead in the Great Lakes. And I started hitting that really hard in the winter, at least a couple of days a week. And, uh, yeah, I was doing that for about four or five years. And then an opportunity came up for me to move to BC. And, uh, you know, I was ready for a change, the political climate and all that. And Quebec wasn't great at the time. And uh, I ended up in BC and uh, the rest is kind of history. Hmm. No kidding. <laughs> what were in BC? Uh, I live in Trail, BC, which is uh, about two and a half hours straight north of Spokane. Oh, yeah. So if, you, if you're looking at a map, like where the Columbia dumps right into Washington State, that's where I live, right there, right that's on the it. border. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, you're right there. Yeah. Okay. And what was the, uh, so your dad, what was the, the railroad company? What, what, what was that company called? Oh, that was uh, Canadian National, the CN. Oh, Okay. What, yeah. what, what was that like? What did you learn on, on that experience? Anything uh, from being a, a kid of a, a, railroad, a guy working for the railroad? Well, he was, like my dad worked in an office, of course. Oh, he yeah. wasn't uh, on the train he wasn't. He wasn't throwing down the, no, the but tracks. We, we did, <laughs> no, but we did move around a lot until we kind of set root in, in Quebec there. Uh, so, you know, I've lived across Canada, basically, oh, wow. which is kind of neat. Yeah. But nice. now BC is the place that I've lived the longest now. I've been here for 23, 24 years. Wow. Yeah. H- how is how is BC uh, uh, different or, you know, from Quebec or, or as far as the natural resources and all that stuff? Uh, well, in Quebec, if I wanted to go fish trout, I'd have to drive an hour to two hours just to find little 12-inch stock trout, you know. Yep. And then here I can just <laughs> – Yeah. Literally, it's a five-minute drive and I can – into some monster trout wild fish you know that's it so there's no comparison no no it's really different that's cool okay. I, I do miss i do miss the great lake steelhead though it was quite an interesting experience like i mean with what's happening with steelhead the great lakes are kind of the future oh wow of steelheading i i hate to say that but you know like i mean if you're if you're looking for a, a fast track way to learn steelheading that's a good way to go rather than out west right yeah yeah, yeah. things are we're in a down uh we're on the downhill side right now Ho- hopefully <sighs> things change hopefully it hopefully it changes i've seen you know i saw the thompson die and now uh once like i had moved from the thompson over to the clearwater and then you know the clearwater was closed last year yeah the numbers are a little better this year but who knows what's going to happen? We, um, you know, I, I don't I talk about this occasionally. We don't get into a ton of conversation, but I'm just curious your take on, um, you know, up in Canada, the Thompson. Do you, do you have uh, uh, any take on what what's going on there? Uh, well, I don't know. There's a lot of different theories. Uh, I was talking to some guys that I'm taking out today, and uh, they're they're they had an interesting take like uh 
they were saying that the fish, instead of going down to the ocean, are just staying in the river. Hmm. And that's because so, the ocean conditions are so poor? Or, or well, I guess... I, it could be. And also there's a lot of uh, cow farming around the oh, area. Right. So, you know, a lot of nutrients in the river and there's more feed than there normally would be because of that. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think there's yeah there's a know, ton of ocean things. yeah ocean conditions and netting and I had John McMillan on a while back and we talked about okay. it and he compared yeah. it to um you know he compared it to uh, you probably remember this or I think you started in '97 somewhere in there at least your spay right is that when your yeah. yeah yeah so so '97 or at least the '90s that's when we the ESA list and everything hit and that's when the numbers are real low and that's kind of the last time it was low like this right and, yeah and it took you know basically. Uh, mid nineties, you know, it took 20 years, 15, 20 years to pull out of it. And then in the mid twenties, right. It, the mid aughts, uh, two thousands, we had these amazing runs. So it's yes. looking like hopefully we can pull back out and we we're in another, we're in the bottom of a trough and then, you know, yeah. but that's a long well, time. That, that's, that's definitely another take. Like, I mean, I remember reading in Trey Combs book, I believe it was about when they were exploring the West coast, there were starving bands of Indians because the the salmon runs were so bad. So hopefully everything just cycles, right? Yeah. And maybe we're just more aware of ocean conditions or, you know, different things like that that can help explain what we weren't able to explain a hundred years ago. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I always stay with the the optimistic, you know, approach. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> it's like <laughs> quite depressing. Exactly. It's like the time we're in now with all the stuff that's going on, man. You could get pretty depressed if you didn't uh, mm-hmm. stay positive because it's a pretty, oh, definitely. It's pretty yeah. crazy world. Uh, how, yeah. By the way, how, how are things going? We're, we're in the COVID. We're still in the COVID. Well, at least down here. How, how are things uh, COVID-wise up in your neck? Uh, you know, we were doing really good in BC and then we, um, it seems that when uh, they loosen up a little bit, people start traveling a bit, and we, we're seeing a few more cases than we have in the past. But uh, you know, where I live is pretty rural, and uh, we haven't really been hit hard by it by any yeah. means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are good. Okay. Well, so 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 uh, let's take that back to the Great Lakes. So, what year was that when you started steelhead fishing the Great Lakes? Uh, in ninety. Oh yeah, ninety. Wow. So you were so yeah. right there at the start, and that's kind of when yeah. space. And it, it was, it was stupid back then because they they stocked like unreal numbers of steelhead, and uh, I remember the first time I went, uh, it was on a two day trip, and I hooked fifty two steelhead before I landed one. Jeez. <laughs> because I was using like, you know, four nymphs. pound test tippet and, and nymphs and. Yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. fifty two yeah. steelhead. That is crazy. Yeah. Well, so so that's early '90s. So you're getting into it, and then the the spay game for you started. in, was it '97? Uh, Why well, it was the fall of '96 was the first time I picked up a spay rod. I was actually um, uh, down on the Wenatchee, and I I had a trip with uh, Bill Martz, who had a fly shop down there, the Blue Dunn, and uh, I I wanted to fish with bill because he was such a great single hand caster but he was trying to force the spay rod into my hands all day and i finally picked it up and i made you know i flipped the line out and i hooked a fish right away and i was like oh that's nice let's get back to the single hander (laughs) (laughs) but then uh the the following fall i picked up my first spay rod or no it was springtime sorry uh the following spring in 97 i picked up my first spay rod from bill 
it was a Sage 7136. And uh, yeah, I went to the Gadget that spring and the Sock and hmm. where else? I went to uh, Sky Comish. And uh, I, you know, I was with a, a young friend of mine and he had my single hander and he was casting further than I could cast with the spay rod. It was driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I stuck with it because it was just so beautiful to watch the guys who were doing it well. You know, it was just amazing to watch. So, yeah. And then, and then, of course, you know, even with the single hand rod, I was always obsessed with distance. So, hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those things that, that explains, yeah, the the, the spare ram and, and everything you have going now. Yeah. 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 What was the uh, so? Who were some of those people that you were watching back then that were that, casting beautifully with the spay? Well, Harry Lemire for sure. You know, he mm-hmm. was probably one of the first people I saw first, you know, guys that really knew what they were doing. And, um, so, uh, you know, Harry Lemur, he, he's, he's, uh, you know, you're seeing this guy out there and, and this is in the, you know, the nineties, the late nineties. I mean, how do you yeah. take it from, you know, that 13, the, um, the 13 foot six rod into now you're kind of known for this long belly, the, the longer stuff, right? Well, how, how did you go yeah. get into that? Uh, I guess it would be Derek Brown was a big influence on me. He was, uh, you know, coming over from Scotland and instructing way back when. And um, I took a class with him. And then, uh, you know, he was the more traditional 15-foot rod with with a longer line. He was making a line at the time called the Spade Driver that was based on Alexander Grant's designs from 100 years ago or something like that. And, um, you know, the longer lines just give you more distance. It's, it's yeah. like that even with single hand lines. So yeah, hmm. that's, that's, that's kind of how that happened. So that's it. The distance thing is, and, and here's the biggest question of the episode for you. It does, does a longer cast help you catch more fish? Where I am, it does. It does. Well, you know, a lot of guys say, Oh, you don't need to cast far to catch fish. Well, it's true, but, um, when you're fishing uh, waters that get covered quite quite a bit, especially for summer run fish, uh, all the best casters that I know are the guys catching the most fish. Mm-hmm. Just because you're covering water, uh, they you know uh, a good caster is fly is turning over pretty much every time, so your fly is fishing that much more than than a lot of people who are just kind of lobbing a cast out and the fly is kind of loose and just swinging around on a dead drift rather than swimming so that's that's my take on it anyway yeah that's a great take for sure yeah you're actually more in control of your fly as opposed to just it's kind of doing whatever yeah and actually a, a really big step for me was reading uh fly and far off by jock scott and uh, in it, there's illustrations of Boggs and Grant. He used to fish long lines and just pick up and cast without shooting line, right? And uh, it was really interesting, that book, because it showed the angles that he fished with the long lines. And it's you're casting more downstream than you would with a shorter line to keep control because you're casting so far and there's so many conflicting currents. So... The, the theory is the faster the, the water, the further downstream you cast. 
mm-hmm. um, to keep that tight tight line to your to your fly. So that that was a real game changer for me. I started hooking up a lot of fish once I moved over to that technique for sure. Huh. Nice, nice. And then, and so the rods you're using now, the longer rods uh, and the lines, are they how similar similar are they to the old historic you know lines or the stuff they're using back in in you know kind of the in Europe and stuff? Well, basically, they're long shooting heads, is what they are. Like I, I. Uh, my go-to rod on the river here is a 16-foot nine-weight Gale Force, and then the line is uh, the 83 Equalizer cut into a head, and then I run mono behind it. Uh, I I'm not aware of anybody making the long lines like they used to. Like I mean, Alexander Grant apparently picked up and cast uh, 180 feet, and those those lines were braided silk, so it's very you know like the plastics aren't conducive to making something like that because the mass that can be held in silk compared to plastic and uh, the diameters are so different mm-hmm. <clears throat> but but they were all based on a continuous taper which is what all the best spay lines are nowadays too hmm. that's right so there's sort of the stuff you're using now this long the long belly stuff isn't really comparable to the say you go back to you know, uh, whatever, whatever time, hundred years ago, a couple hundred years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're definitely shooting line rather than just yeah. picking up and casting those long distances, but we are also easily attaining the distances that they used to. That's right. Uh, you know, so, you know, what was, what was once, you know, the domain of just a few people in the world or it's, you know, there's, like say a hundred people that are capable of it now rather than just two or three people. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, <clears throat> and who are the other, so Gale Force, I've heard a lot about them. Who are the other companies uh, making similar uh, lines and, and rods in that range? It seems like, I mean, down uh, here, yeah, you hear a lot about the, the short, you know, the OPST is right. The other end things yeah, are going that yeah, way. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the European companies are the ones really like uh, Gale Force and uh, Bruce and Walker and uh as far as lines uh longer lines i know that uh uh, some friends of mine have boss fly lines and i guess that's mainly done by gene oswald who is the north american rep for uh bruce and walker Mm -hmm. and then there's next cast lines uh yeah there's a you know they're out there yeah uh you know like Way back when, you know, I met Steve Choate and Wei Yin, and they were the guys behind the XLT, which was uh, the first commercially available really long belly line that was on that continuous taper idea. Uh, and those those were really long lines and uh, quite, uh, they were a little harder to work with, but, you know, overall, the, the longer lines, you have to be a better caster. Um, you know, the short lines, a lot of people can just kind of lob them out there, yeah. but the longer lines, you have to like, you know, yeah, technically things have to be right. Otherwise the line isn't going anywhere. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And-, and it's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, somebody who's really good with a short line, but never cast a long line will struggle. 
but somebody who's good with a long line can pick up a short line and cast it. That's so, right. And, and what percentage, yeah. I mean, it seems like there's, maybe there's a little bit of a movement towards the longer stuff, but what percentage of people do you see, you know, long, long bellies versus the, the shorter stuff these days? Well, you know, it all depends on the, the fish you're fishing for. Like, I mean, summer runs are conducive to, to longer lines. Let's say with summer's up on the, the, uh, your river, the clear water or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's, well, on the clear water, there's a lot of people with the long bellies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, if you were to go to the OP, you know, I wouldn't be fishing a long belly in, on the OP. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, you know, you are fishing tips and yeah. those rivers are smaller and, you know, it, it, it really depends on a lot of different factors. But, uh, you know, good casting is good casting. That's what I always say. Yeah. Like with my, with my clients, uh, you know, like the original idea behind Skagit lines from what I understand was to make it easy for clients to fish sink tips and get into, you know, get into spade casting. Right. Cause it's a short, heavy piece of line and you can really feel the rod bend and whatnot. But, uh, for my clients, I, I use, uh, a longer rod in the 14 or 15 foot uh, length. And I have them just, when they haven't spay cast before, I just have them doing double spays off of each side. And within a half hour, I can get them where they're fishing in the 80 to 90 foot range. Hmm. Whereas if you were using short lines, having to deal with all that running line, like they're not shooting line at this point. So with the short lines, you know, you'd have to be able to manage a lot of running lines, cast that far consistently. So, yeah, no, this is a, this is a great conversation because I've had a lot of, you know, I just had Jerry French on and we talked about yep. the, the history, you know, and how that all came to be. And you're right. That's how, mm -hmm. that's how it happened. It was easier, but it's interesting to hear you talking. It sounds like, you know, you could take somebody who's fairly new to spay and with a longer belly line, you can actually have them fishing pretty easy. Just, just like they talk, like you can get a you know person with the OPST stuff going. Yeah, but again, like I mean, my river is huge. Yeah, you know, so Different it's deal. it's all it yeah. all depends on where you are. Exactly, you you're not uh, you have plenty of room behind you for your. Uh, your well, dealing. that's that's another thing. Uh, you know, like for a long time, a lot of people thought the bigger the D loop you could make behind you, the more distance you could get. But that's kind of not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like the the whole idea behind spay rods is so that you can fish in tight to the bank, right? Yep. So uh, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine where people say, oh, you can't use a long belly on tight to the bank, but you definitely can. Yeah. Well, explain that. Well, it's an adjustment of angles, right? Mm -hmm. Like like I said, you were casting further downstream. Now, I, like, I mean, how I view it and how some of the better casters that I know view it is that the, the energy trapped between the point of the rod tip and the line touching down on the water. So if your anchor is far in front of you, you can have a D-loop that's like a couple feet behind you and you'll still get the same distance or better. And you definitely get better turnover when your anchor is far in front of you. So that's kind of my take on it. Gotcha. So it just depends again yeah. where you're... Yeah. Gotcha. Where you start that out. Okay. And, and then, 
you know, again, I'm so maybe you could just take us through because I, I'd like to dig in a little bit of this, you know, for think of somebody who's, you know, been doing a lot of the, the short, the shorter stuff and they've uh-huh. never, they've never casted a 15, 16 foot rod. Yeah. What, and they go out and they pick up one, you know, one of these rods and it's all ready to go. You know, obviously a lesson would be the best thing, but if they were out there, how would you explain that they might get up and get going? What, what do they need to know to get, to get started? Uh, <laughs> is, that too, is that too much? <laughs> Could Definitely they just watch a lessons. video? Could, could they just go uh, out and watch a couple of videos of you casting? I know, uh, you know, people do that a lot. I know that's not the best thing, but if they watched some of your videos, you know, would they be able to learn enough to get going? Uh, it would help definitely, you know, because there's certain rules to casting that that apply. Um, you know, like for myself, like I said, I live in a rural area, but I always sought out people to take lessons from uh i've always been that way in my fly fishing career fly tying and stuff like that mm-hmm. so um yeah uh who was your first lesson so george cook was the first school i went to and that was put on on the wanachi it was a one-day school and it was really interesting because back then we were fishing wind cutters and uh, like i said i had that 7136 which is just a total noodle and George handed me his rod at the end of the day, which was a 15-foot 10 weight with a wind cutter. And I made one cast with it, and I was across the river like nothing. So that that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to what huh. what the difference could be. Like on the Wenatchee, you didn't really need that. It wasn't a huge river, but uh, the the potential <laughs> for distance is, is much greater with a heavier rod. Uh, you know, like a lot of people come here with trout spays and they're, you know, a trout spay is limited just because the length of the line and the weights and, and the, you know, the rod is softer compared to something that's got a little more oomph to it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they'll catch fish definitely, but you will not hit those seams that are a hundred to 150 feet out there. Yeah. So that, that's the difference. Like, I mean, but it fishing, like, I mean, you know, like with short rods, like with single hand rods, I, I'm totally the opposite. I prefer rods under seven feet long. Hmm. And I used to fish a lot of like five foot six and six foot fiberglass rods way back in the day just cause it was fun. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, huh. you know, every, everybody's got their own take on what's fun. So have at it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There's a lot, there's a lot of options. Uh, and there's a lot of more options these days than when you started in the mid nineties, right? Oh man, it's amazing how far we've come. It's, you know, like you can't, you can't get a bad spay rod nowadays. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Whereas back in the day, you know, there was a lot of rods that were like, not good. Yeah. Either, either too stiff or too soft or, you know, but the UK rods have always had that action you know where the the tip is stiffer and the the bend deep into the butt so uh, and that's another thing with the long rods like a lot of people are like oh man a 16 foot nine weight that's crazy for trout are you nuts the thing is though is the longer the lever the bigger advantage a fish has on you like those longer rods they bend really deep Hmm. so um you know there that's that's another take on it also yeah so that's a good that's another bonus yeah what about the, uh, I had Klaus Freemar on from, uh, you know, from Loop and everything. Yep. He, he talks about underhand casting, uh, you know, mm-hmm. can you 
talk about the differences between what you do and what he does? Uh, you know, what I do and what he does is not that far off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like I said before, good casting is good casting. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to use the top hand as a fulcrum point and the bottom hand to move the rod, which is the whole basis of underhand casting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's an exercise that I do with uh, newer people where I, I get them to hold the rod firmly in front of their face and just get the line to move back with the bottom hand by pushing forward and then get the line to go forward by pulling in with the bottom hand. And once people get an understanding that the bottom hand makes you like you use the whole rod with the bottom hand compared to, you know, the upper third of the rod with the top hand, that, that idea kind of sticks with people because it's just easier. Right. Mm -hmm. My, my whole theory is the rod does the work for me with minimal movements from my hands. And I, I use a lot of body for my casting and locking my arms and turning and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh yeah that's my take hmm. it's good casting is good casting yeah so it's all so none of it's really that much i mean even compared to say obviously the skagit stuff is a different types of you know uh, where you're putting your anchors and things but the cast itself is is, is similar would you say overall uh the, well yeah there's always a basic principle where the line the back part of the line is in the air you have an anchor and you have the line attached to the rod tip so it's, uh, you know, if to me, the most important part of the spay cast is really going into your back cast your, or your D loop. Uh, it's kind of like a single hand rod. If you make a great back cast, the front cast is just basically you're just turning over the rod. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of the same idea. The hardest part on a, on a spay rod, especially with the long belly line, is learning to relax and let the rod do the work for you. Exactly. Uh, most people try and overpower everything, especially going into the back cast, and then you're blowing anchors or you're getting too much line on the water. You know, like your top hand, if it goes behind your head, then your rod tip goes down and line follows rod tip, and you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basic principles. Uh, just just like you know what Edward or any of those gadget guys. You know, he says about staying inside the box. It's the it's kind of the same thing with, um, yeah. And you know, all the best guys will tell you. Doesn't matter what line system, slow down. Yeah, (laughs) do not overpower the rod. Like a lot of people think that uh, for distance casting, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with the uh, competition stuff, that the harder you can hit it initially, the further it's going to go. That's not true. If if you hit it as hard as you can right from the get go, you're you're overloading the rod, and the rod never has a chance to, or the line never has a chance to catch up with the rod. But if you do a smooth application of power from the bottom hand to a firm, crisp stop on the forward cast, then you're releasing the energy from the rod. The rod will be bent as as deep as you want it to be. And then it just lets go. It's kind of like a, a bow and arrow. The arrow doesn't go anywhere till the, the bow has stopped mm-hmm. when you release that energy. That's it. So, uh, well, yeah, that's kind of, you know, these are all things that I use uh, yeah. or golf. in teaching. These, are, Yeah, exactly. 
another thing I, I talk about in a, uh, you know, in a demo type scenario is, um, if you've ever seen one of those machines that holds a golf club and it makes the exact same swing every time and it hits the ball and the ball goes the exact same place every time. Hmm. Well, that's how I feel about the back cast. So I I'll do my lift to target and then I lock my arms and I just turn my body. So I'm making myself like that machine and then my anchor lands consistently in the same place every time. Hmm. That's, you know, yep. that's my take on it. That's it. So, yeah. so from the pickup, if you just paint that picture, you know, audio, it's always hard to do, but you, know, you, you do your, you do your, your shotgun lift. I guess it's a similar thing. You do your lift. Uh, and then, no, no, I don't really do a shotgun lift. Yeah. Describe the whole process from, I, we're sitting there on the river. We're looking, say, let's say we're on the, uh, river left. The river's going from right to left and you're, yeah. you're going to pick Doing up and do a single spay. spay and yeah. Uh, yeah, just describe the whole thing. Yeah. So basically uh, my hips will be facing, like I'll be squared to my target where I'm casting to. And then I turn to the pickup and with the rod tip, I'll lift up, but at an angle lifting towards my target. Mm-hmm. Now, once the rod tip gets to my target, that's when I just turn my body with my arms locked. And it's, it's simple to explain it's simple to demonstrate, but it's deceptively hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> like this, this was all described to me, you know, 10 years ago and it's taken me 10 years and I'm sure it'll take me a lot longer to like, I, I feel like I'm comfortable with it now, uh-huh. but the whole idea of getting away from that top hand where you're like dipping the rod or whatever, like all these things are introducing slack. And then you have to compensate by pulling with the top hand. Mm. But if you use the rod, you know, as a as a, a lever with a fulcrum, that bottom hand is so key to making making magic happen. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it, it it applies to like I mean you know I don't I don't fish just long belly lines. I you know I'm I'm able to fish the Skagit lines and the Scandi lines and all that and the shorter lines. And, uh, the exact same principles work. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. The same, the same. And then taking it back to the water. So if you, like you said, you start, you know, with your hips pointing at the target where you're going to yeah. cast, you, you do your lifts up and then you turn, uh, well, I lift to the target. Yeah. Lift. Yeah. So right. You, you lift can, towards you, the target yeah. The diagonal. Yeah. Yeah. So I never lift straight up. Gotcha. I'm always lifting at an angle to the target. And is is it not a is it not a shotgun like angled lift? Mm. How's it different from a shotgun it, it, lift? Well, you know, lifts will vary because of different water currents and you know, yeah. if you're in riffly water or smooth water, that's the thing with the long line is that you have to be able to uh sure, change your watch. Yeah, you yeah. you know, there's a lot of variables there. So like the biggest thing right from the get-go is watching your lift watching what happens when as the line comes off the water uh like i i'm into uh other than this i'm really into motorcycle racing and that Hmm. on tracks and i've been to a lot of courses and everything is visual on a motorcycle like you go where you look Hmm. so uh when i teach i'll teach to watch the lift 
make sure you're lifting the line off the water. And then at a certain point, you're kind of watching your top hand into your back cast to keep it from moving back. And then you're watching your bottom hand. And then out of the corner of the eye, you're watching your anchor land. And that's when you know it's time to go forward. So then I'm watching my hands and then I'm watching the rod tip release the energy. And then I'm watching my line go out. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gives you a more continuous flow that way rather than just concentrating on one thing over and over. Now that's in actual casting, but uh, you know, there's a lot of benefit also to just doing one movement over and over and over also like uh, when I, when I was really working on this, this fulcrum casting style of casting uh, I, I got some advice about just doing your anchors and nothing else. So I would just go down and do a couple hours of just placing my anchor the exact same place every time I pop the line back at an angle and then I do the anchor back anchor back anchor and you know that that stuff really pays off in the long run yeah. and, and like I mean a lot of people just want to go fishing <laughs> but how much how much money do you spend on a trip I know and then you get there and you're like oh I don't know how to cast so that's your job as the guide you know yeah. <laughs> whereas you know you look at golfers or you know, they're out there practicing the best golfers all the time. So that's that's a comparison I can make. And, like, I mean, it, it's, it's worth your while to figure out how to cast. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsors. Gotfishing.com, a boutique booking agency for fishing adventures around the world. Gotfishing is unique in working with a small hand-selected group of outfitters from around the world that are known for providing an experience that is second to none. Gotfishing can be your trusted source of information with access to the world's best fishing trips. Their sole purpose is to help you plan the most authentic fishing venture while making sure it fits within your budget. The beauty is that everything they do is 100% free. You will never pay a dime extra for your trip, and in many cases, less than advertised. I can attest personally to the service that Gotfishing provides as they have been working with me closely to set my first trip to the Yucatan for saltwater. They have taken care of all the important details and allowed me to avoid worrying about any of the complications. I know Brian and the crew have you covered at Got Fishing. Whether you need a fishing consultant, travel consultant, gear pro, or the like, they have you covered. With top-of-the-line outfitters they represent around the world, they are confident they have just the right trip for you. You can give them a call at 208-630-3373 or head over to gotfishing.com to get started today. Let Got Fishing help you plan the fishing trip you've been dreaming about. That's gotfishing.com. I forget that in the center are rivers and fish unspoken for. That there are valleys, the strata of which we lower into perhaps in the hollow between breaths. In the tiny pause between the rise of summer and its departure, I nearly forget the long sieve of winter, the absence, the fractional glimpses of light. Dear one, I will go without speaking. Ablaze, keep me until I disappear. That was a poem by Molly Dam in the summer edition of the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. On top of uh, some great poetry, as you as you hear here, uh, FTJ is jam-packed with another round of great articles in diverse departments. Joseph Rosano uh, is back again, provides another classic steelhead uh, lesson for everyone. We hear from Garrett Lesko in a stacking deer hair frenzy. Find out about striped bass from Angelo Peloso. And hear uh, from Dave McNeese on singing the blues and material dying. 
Lots of additional articles in the summer edition, including an editor's interview with yours truly about how I became a fly fishing podcaster. Craig uh, did a really good job with this one, so I'm, I'm pretty uh, proud uh, to be in in this edition. I believe I have found the perfect sponsor for the show. I would be uh, it would be really great if you can uh, support FTJ by heading over to ftjangler.com and subscribing so you don't miss any of the tips, tricks, and stories in the next issue. That's ftjangler.com to get started today. And uh, tell them, uh, tell Craig and the crew out there you heard about um, the magazine from the podcast, and I'll find a way to uh, put something extra special together for you. Okay, back to the show. Okay, and uh, so if we take it to, you know, back to the river, so maybe you could just describe, I know we had Stephen Bird on uh, a while back, and we talked about the the Upper Columbia, which was just this really cool. I got some feedback from people that listened to that episode, and they're like, holy crap, that sounds amazing, right? These are uh, essentially steelhead kind of uh, steelhead that aren't making it to the ocean that you guys are fishing for, kind of trout-like. Can you explain, take us to the river, your area? Uh, Okay, so once you cross the border, the river widens and shallows. So we have huge, huge runs. Like, I mean, you you could take three or four runs and fish those, and, like, it'll take a day to fish them. (laughs) That's how big they are. And, uh yeah, that's that's the big difference between okay. you know Steven, Steven's water and, and my water. Um, so the, the like, I mean, the the optimal time for me is September through into the springtime because the water is much lower than it is right now. Right now, it's it's raging basically. Oh, right. So so the runs that I would normally fish are all underwater, hmm. and the water's moving so fast you can't wait it. So. Uh, it, it's it's a unique situation like i mean it's all fed by dams above us also so uh the water temperatures stay very consistent and the fish you know like uh i was talking to one biologist one time and um they were doing a lot of radio tagging for a while there and uh the fish that they would catch within like a year they would have two or three growth rates on their scales Whereas a, a normal fish somewhere else would have one growth rate, so uh, you know the 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 feed and the water conditions and everything just just uh, lend it lends itself to these fish getting bigger. Plus the steelhead genes that are in them. Uh, there's five strains of rainbows up here that I know of, yeah. and uh, one of them is like I mean it's we call them red sides, but they are definitely a landlock steelhead. Yeah. Yeah. And and how big how big do those get? Just... Uh well the the biggest I've ever landed was around twenty pounds. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh there was one landed well I've I've seen quite a few landed on gear that are in the twenty three, twenty four pound range. Jeez. And then uh there was talk of a fish that was caught a, caught in a net pen at the mouth of a creek that was around 33 pounds. Now you have to take into into consideration there is a reservoir above us and there is a lock on one dam and there are Gerards in there and, uh, you know, they're in that, they can get into that 20 pound range. So those fish could be coming down through the lock from the reservoir, but whatever, they're still in the river. So (laughs) can you explain Gerards? Uh, Gerards are a, a 
it's uh, strain rainbows up that we have up here. Uh, they get really big, and they were also a landlocked steelhead. Hmm. And uh, they they're kind of an interesting fish because the the head and the body are are huge, but yet the tail is really small. Whereas the red sides, the the body is um, slender, like they're really well proportioned, but their tails are huge. Hmm. So that's cool. I don't. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I th- I think. Yeah, I don't. I don't really want to go into that no. because I'm no, no, by no. no means a biologist or anything like that. Yeah, I just we, yeah, we don't know to, them to see them. <laughs> exactly. We don't have to dig into that. Yeah. It is. It is interesting though. So so the lake. I mean, typically a steelhead would go to the ocean. So they're they're not going down to a lake and coming back. They're going up to a lake and coming. Well, down. that's the thing. Like the ones that I'm going for, which are really the red sides. Those are the ones that I try and catch. Uh, they do go down into the big reservoir down below us. Oh, there is a big reservoir down below. Oh yeah. To. Yeah. There's, it just tur- it's Lake Roosevelt. So oh, it just turns right. into this big, yeah, it's huge. So that's basically the ocean, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So they are do- doing the same life history, just using the, oh, yeah. the lake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they move around a lot. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So. So that's the the deal, and it, this is similar. It's funny because I had, uh, you know, we obviously have been all around the North America and, and talked about steelhead, but um, you know, oh gosh, Peter Charles was on. He was talking about out in Ontario fishing the Grand River, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure, you know. And he was saying how again that one was a real challenging river, really like you're saying, long and big and flat. And, yeah. And uh, I mean, are the fish up there in your area pretty hard to catch? I mean, are they more challenging than your typical steelhead? Uh, typical steelhead. Well, that's a good, that's a tough question. Let's say, well, <laughs> or let, typical let, trout. Yeah, let, exactly. Let me uh, let me rephrase that. What, what's uh, you know, if you go out there fishing in a t- typical average day, what, what what's it like? I mean, how, how much action that sort of thing are you getting? Uh, well, I'm tar- targeting the bigger fish. So, um, like, if you want to catch small fish, you can float around in a back eddy with a bobber, or you know, there's a lot of different. Okay. Ways to to do this river, um, like the whole evolution of the the spay thing with the trout here is kind of weird because basically what I was doing was I was going to this one run in particular and practicing my spay casting, and I would put on a little nymph with the appropriate size tippet, but I kept getting my ass handed to me. So, uh, there was one day I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll just put on a big leech with a heavy tippet. And then I landed this fish Hmm. that was, you know, eight or nine pounds, something like that. And, uh, it's, and I think the, the, what, what I believed was heavy tippet at the time was like six or eight pound test. Yep. And, um, like now typically when I go steelheading, I'll use 10 pound test, but here I use 12 pound test. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's, uh, they, they, so here's the deal, right? Like these fish haven't run up from the ocean. They're fresh as can be and they're actively feeding. And, uh, they, they don't fight like a typical steelhead, like a typical steelhead will kind of stay out in the current and fight you from there. These guys, they'll run downstream in the current. And then if there's any kind of a back eddy, they'll come straight back at you. Hmm. and uh you know yeah. like when i'm guiding i, I i'm like <laughs> strip one of the or... first things i tell those guys <laughs> if you hook a fish 
get to shore and be ready to run upstream exactly. if I tell you. So, you know, it's 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 a different deal, but it's it's not. I don't know. Like I mean, I I fish traditional spade flies and little, you know, uh uh stacked wing Atlantic yeah. salmon classic type patterns and you know it like I mean it is what you make it. I I don't I wouldn't say that I catch more fish than anybody else, but I do catch uh, larger fish just because of the you know I'm targeting them with bigger flies and and heavier tippet. Yeah. So that's the biggest that's the biggest thing you're saying when you target bigger fish you're just using bigger flies heavier tippet but also covering in the deeper further out water yes yes yeah that's it that's where the bigger fish there's the bigger fish are out in that heavier water yeah but like i mean it all depends if like at this time of year i'll get up at four o'clock in the morning and fish drop-offs and those big fish will be you know within 40 50 60 feet so but that's this time of year. Later, when the water drops and it just turns into a big open run, like there's seams on top of seams on top of seams. Hmm. So there's there's lots of times I wish I could cast further than I can. <laughs> yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So it, and it sounds like again, I you know, with Stephen Bird, he described the process of catching fish down there. You know, just downstream of you. Is it? Other than the larger rivers, is that process uh, fairly similar on how you swing flies? I think he uses more a lot of soft tackle stuff and things yeah, like that. Yeah, Steve, Steve uses more, you know, Trouty. stuff that would typically rec- uh, represent trope food. But he does fish bigger. And uh, actually, you know, like I, I've known Stephen for a while, but last year was the first time that we actually met and fished together. And uh, the similarities were there, you know. Yeah. Like how we, how we fish. So hmm. that's cool. Obviously we're both doing something right Yeah, <laughs> or totally wrong. Who knows? <laughs> that's right. What, what about, yeah. uh, I had a question, the Facebook group, it was on a uh, water temperature. I know a steelhead that can be pretty important. Well, just any fish, obviously that can be pretty important, but do you see, I know you guys are out there kind of right in the desert and that sort of thing. Do you see differences in morning versus evening and water temps? And do, does that play um, not really you know i used to really pay attention to that stuff coming from back east and um now i it's not even a consideration like yeah i don't know you don't worry because the, the water stays very consistent oh right it, yeah because you're at a tail tail water essentially yeah basically yeah uh one thing i do here in the winter time is i i just fish dry lines um I have experimented with sink tips and that, and it didn't really make any difference. So it's just much pleasant, much more pleasant to fish a, a full line, full mm-hmm. dry line. And uh, yeah, these fish, you know, the big ones, they're actively feeding, like I said. So if you get a fly near them, they're going to grab it, just like a steelhead. Like I mean, uh, the that was that was something that was interesting. The difference between uh, the Great Lakes steelhead and the West Coast steelhead was, you know, the way that you fish them. Um, just to go back to the Great Lakes mm-hmm. stuff, I remember, you know, I tried all kinds of different things and uh, like strike indicators and, you know, yep. uh, chuck it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like with slinkies <laughs> and stuff and chuck. like that. Yeah. Chuck and duck. But then uh, one day I saw a guy with, he was casting a single head rod with a sinking shooting head. 
and he was casting at an angle, downstream angle with a big muddler. And I saw the rod just bend like the, the take, right? Hmm. And that, that was uh, like my last year of living back east. So was, as soon as I saw that, I ran to town and got a sink tip from the local fly shop and I was right back at it right away. And sure yeah. enough, I got my ass handed to me because <laughs> uh, the, the, only, the only muddlers I had were trope muddlers and the, oh, yeah. the hook just wasn't strong enough, right? So I still have that muddler with the hook totally straightened out, which is kind <laughs> of interesting. But that, that was kind of a game changer for me too. That, that really convinced me to move out west. Also. Oh, really? Well, it helped. It helped influence my move out west. My ex-wife will say different, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. So you moved out west for for the fishing. That was your number one reason. Well, on a personal level, yes. Yeah, uh, work was part of it, you know. But um, I had an opportunity to have a good job out here, so I I, I took it. But the steelhead was definitely uh, a deciding factor, and then finding the trout in the columbia like i figured oh, yeah. it was just like you know but to find what was really here like it was yeah you had amazing. no idea you had no idea to the... i had no idea huh. none whatsoever yep yeah it it still seems like it's a little a uh, little secret spot out there you know you hear a lot of these you hear a lot about steelhead you hear a lot about montana and everything else but you know that little section where you're at it seems like you don't hear as much about is that well we are kind of in the middle of nowhere are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're like a seven or eight hour drive from Vancouver. We're a seven hour drive from Calgary. Yeah. The closest city is, is, uh, Spokane. Oh, Spokane. Right. Yeah. Which is, so which is two, five, two and a half. Hours. Oh, it's only two. Okay. So a few hours. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Okay. I wanted to just dig into a little bit, just a few other tips and things, but I was curious, I've heard a lot about the, the red shed, the spade clave and things like that. Can you describe, um, you know, I guess it's poppy and that whole thing. Can you describe the, the spade clave that you guys have going? Is it, is it similar to other spade claves and what's that feel? What's that all about? Uh, it's definitely similar to other spade claves. The instruction is top notch. Like, I mean, you know, I've had, uh, Simon Gosworth, Mike Kinney, uh, you know, Albert, Zach Williams, uh, Travis Johnson, Whitney Gold. Like, I mean, yeah, all, all the, yeah, you know, all the good people. And, uh, definitely the red shed is like my second family. So I might be a little biased on, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> on how I feel about them. But if you ask anybody that knows them, they'll all say the same thing that they are, yeah, our family. It, is Poppy, is he the guy that's been there kind of the longest, been running that, that thing out there or kind of the, been yeah, leading, well, I guess? He, you know, like the, the Red Shed is, is his baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it's the first time I met him, I couldn't believe, you know, I drove around the river looking for this big fly shop and it ended up being this little, little barn at the end of a driveway. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it was basically a, a horse stable at one time and um uh yeah i walked into this little shop and i just couldn't believe the amount of space stuff that was in there because that's all he carried oh, at wow. the time he and uh the fly tying materials and everything and uh so the, it's kind of an interesting story when i first met poppy um i i was in the middle of a divorce and i, I had one spay rod which was this huge 18 foot daiwa and i was gonna buy uh, uh 
Poppy had what he calls experienced rods for sale. <laughs> I was going to buy one of his rods, and he and uh, at that time I had just started an association with G Loomis, and we were waiting for the grease liners to come out. And he was like, "Well, don't buy that. Here, I'll just lend you this rod for the weekend, type of deal." And I didn't know him. He didn't take a credit card number or anything, right? <laughs> so that's very typical of Poppy. Cool. Like, I mean, yeah, like yeah. I've seen him give give rods to kids and you know stuff like that, or waiters, or just you know, yeah. So, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's, they're, uh, quite, quite, uh, the amazing people yeah, right. <laughs> and, and it all extends into the spade clave too, you know, like it's a labor of love really. Uh, you know, they put on a nice big lunch and they don't ask for anything. And huh. so it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Where is that one at? Uh, it's on the clear water. Mm-hmm. It's at it's at a state park, which is about uh, maybe seven miles downriver from where the red shed is. Okay, something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. And so what, it's it's yeah. in be, it's, it's in between or Lewiston and Orofino. Okay. And what time of year so is Lewiston, that? So uh, it's the last weekend in September. Gotcha. Yeah, but uh, as I don't know what's happening this year with the, the steelhead runs because last year the steelhead was closed, right? We still had the clave and, uh, it was kind of fun. Like a bunch of us went down there early just to kind of hang out. We didn't fish. Yeah. And, but we did get together and cast and stuff like that. So, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I'm not a hardcore fisherman. Like I used to be like, I'm, I like just hanging with my friends or having a nap on my boat while other, other people fish. Yeah climb in behind them type of deal and uh yeah so <laughs> was it was there any talk i mean i hope i hope things you know recover obviously and maybe this year's a better year and you know things like that but you know I, i'm trying to think of i had a guest way way back uh, a couple years ago that was well i guess we were talking about the thompson and some of that stuff too um uh, i think it was spot uh, scott baker mcgarva and yep and uh and he said it was a really great chat but he said that you know what uh, he's talking about kind of the the stuff around nor- northern washington and the fact that you know they those rivers were close too right and mm-hmm. and he said a really important thing to remember is that you know what if you close the rivers too long people forget about them yeah and he said like that's what happened up there people after five or so years they you know or whatever they just forgot about them and you lose the conservation people that are backing it up i mean do you think the Clearwater, you know first of all do you think that could be an issue there and then secondly do you think opening up where maybe people are just fishing with hair with no hook you know what i mean something like that would be worthwhile well the the thing down on the Clearwater, it's a lot different than the thompson um you know, like there's a hatchery on the Clearwater, right? Oh, right. So the system That's is kind of geared towards a put and take gotcha. mentality. And there's a lot of um, gear guiding that goes on down there. Like, uh, you know, there'll be a party boat where everybody's oh wow bot- bottom bouncing uh, egg sacks and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And um, the... the um, I forget who it is, but they're really pushing for a Chinook opening in the fall that coincides with what used to be the catch and release season for steelhead. Now, the catch and release season used to be um, artificials only. Now, if this whole thing with the the 
salmon opens up, like yeah. you could theoretically wow. be fishing, you know, troubles with, uh, That's with, crazy. with bait at that time of year. Huh? But, uh, yeah, that seems, seems kind of yeah, crazy. So that, that's kind of the, you know, there's a lot of political battles that yeah. are going on there gotcha. also. And, um, I, like, I mean, it's, it's just sad to see something happen to another river, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's also like, I mean, everybody pushes for removal of the dams and, yep. and wild fish, but that, that river, this might be a little controversial what I'm about to say, but, uh, that river kind of is what it is at this point. Like, I mean, uh, you know, it, it needs a little help from the hatchery. Like I've had hatchery fish there kick my ass just as much as I've had wild fish kick my ass. Yeah. So, so you don't think, uh, you don't think closing, uh, shutting the river down and removing the four lower snake dam river dams. Well, I, that would be the optimal thing to do, but is that yeah. going to happen in our lifetime? I, I don't know. No, I think, I think, well, I think the potential <laughs> that there, those four dams come out, uh, you know, I think, yeah, maybe it's if, possible. If they, if they did that, <laughs> It would be a no-brainer that the you know you any river where the dams have been removed, of course they they the fish come back. They just do that. Like even here where I am, like they're they're starting to, uh, you know, there's a whole treaty going on between the Canada and U.S. and the native bands about getting salmon back up here. Yep. So exactly. how they do that, I don't know. The fish will come back. Ah, yeah. You know that's just what they do but as far as the smolts getting down from the, to the ocean from here that's a whole other matter it's kind of like the, the the clear water if the fish are there they'll come back but whether the smolts make it down to the ocean is a whole other story because of all the oh, yeah. everything you else. know the dead water and the dams and the predators yeah, yeah. and there's an increase on the predators now and yeah i don't know yeah, <laughs> there's a lot going on. There's, there's. I, I don't want to get too much for this, but I always have an interesting thing. I remember the, uh, you know, the Hamford nuclear uh, plant, right? How far, yeah. how far is that? That's downstream of you guys, right? Uh, yeah. So that's a little ways, but there's actually, I think, you know, a radioactive uh, reservoir area uh, adjacent to the Columbia. Yeah. So it's well, just there's, like, you know, like overall uh, steelhead survival in the ocean. Like there's talk about. The radiation that's leaking out of Japan that right. is affecting the steelhead runs. So, sure. man, you know, and then the blob and the seals and, the and everything, dead water for the fish to have to get through. You name it. Yeah, you name it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's not go down that road anymore. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> I, I wanted to uh, keep this on the positive on the positive yeah. note, but uh, uh, yeah. so yeah, we're gonna get out of here pretty quick. I did want to touch on a few more tips, just because you know. Like I said, the long belly, the long rods, you know, it sounds like, you know, if you just learn to become a good spay caster, it'll probably go a long ways to casting those longer uh, lines and things like that well, and rods. Like, like I said, it'll, you'll be able to cast anything better. Yep. There you go. So yep. what would you give somebody just, you know, if you talk about some tips and, and if you had to throw out there a few, just, you know, you got a new client out there, he's picking up the rod. What, what do you tell yeah. him when he gets on the water to, to start to think about? Uh, slow down. <laughs> okay, slow down. That's like that's one. <laughs> yeah, uh, watch your lift. Watch the line coming off of the water every time. Okay, uh, and uh, 
try not to overpower the rod, especially with the top hand. Yep. Don't overpower. Yeah. yeah. So are those, those three, there's three, are those pretty much the top three things you, you would, if you had uh, Those three? are the three things when I'm working with a client that yeah. always come up. <laughs> yep. Slow down, slow down, watch your lift and, and don't yeah. overpower. When you watch that lift, how do you know, when, when do you make, and again, you said depends on the water conditions and things, but typically yes. when do you make that transition to set up your anchor? Well, you know, with the longer line, the weight is in the back and then the front is mostly taper. So you'll lift and pull back. You know, you can just kind of play with it for a little bit. Like this is where a little bit of practice goes a long way. Um, with just, you know, the the least amount of lift that will allow you to pull the line back to where you want to get to will be the optimal because you're the less you lift like the the higher you lift the rod tip the more chance there is for the line to drop at a certain point and that's when you create slack yeah um you know tension is everything like if you can keep hmm. tension in a line like i i can cast a huge fly off the end of a, a long belly line that has a fine front taper if i can keep tension in the line all the way through the cast and one of the best demos i ever saw about this was albert where he was showing he had a piece of line between his hands and it's loose and he's just kind of shaking it around and he's like you know how will this go through the, the wind versus and then he pot it pulled it tight and the line was tight you know and like i mean hmm. you know if you have that tension then it will cut through the the wind or throw a bigger fly or, you know, tension right. is, is uh, a big deal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If right. that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. It, it makes total yeah. sense. And it all, like you said, it really depends on the conditions because if you have faster yeah. water or slower or like or the difference between casting out of a pool versus casting out of a faster riffle. Is, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And that's the yeah. struggle or, or when the water's up to your chest versus at your ankles, right? exactly yeah, yeah. That, and that's, that's why yeah. watching the lift is very key right like yeah you'll, what you'll about when you're at what about when you make you know from a, a beginner you know when you make that you know your swing and you set up your d loop and then you're coming forward you know with your hands a lot of times you see this where it seems like with the longer belly lines you guys are your hands are going higher up can you can you talk about where your hands are placed above your head or it seems like you know maybe uh, with the shorter rods they're they're not that you can be more compact yeah, well, it is compact because it's tight to the body. Right, it's still in that box. Yeah. Uh, really, all you're doing is compensating for the longer line. Okay. So that it, as you go up, you keep that D-loop up in the air. Now, I, I, try and, I try and get away from telling the people to rise up and because they have a tendency to raise just the top hand, and then the bottom hand stays in close to the body. So I tell them what I want them to do is just push out the bottom hand versus rising up. Gotcha. And uh, typically my top hand will never go above my head, but my bottom hand will be kind of flat. Oh, wow. You know, like the rod will be flat because oh, my cool. bottom hand is so far out. Now, the whole idea is that if the bod bottom hand is away from your body, you will use that. But if it's tight against your body, you can't use that. So even just like a couple inches of bottom hand being away from your body will force like you're 
it's just natural that you pull in first before you push with the top end. And that's where you get that full, nice bend down, mm. down through the whole rod, right through the cork. That's it. Yeah. That's great. And how are you holding uh, on the grip? What does your grip look like with your top hand? Uh, so thumbs on top. Yeah. Yeah. Thumbs on top. Uh, okay. If if you're holding it without the thumbs on top, like everything lines up perfectly, right? Like, so if you're not holding it with the thumbs up, uh, the rod can get into weird kind of contortions with your hands, right? But if you have your thumbs on the rod, the the it's just a natural movement that things stay in line. Perfect. So you're not making yeah. a. Um, you know, instead of holding with your thumb, making a, um, like a, your index finger and thumb, a, a loop around the cork, like actually not, I've heard some people describe that to, to keep you from using the top hand, you know? You just... Uh, well, yeah, there's, there's different techniques, but yeah. overall for myself personally, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's how, you do it, yeah. how I do it. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's only for when I'm working on specific things, like to get people to stop using their top hand and use their bottom hand more, I'll tell them to squeeze the crap out of the bottom and have the super super yep. light or just two fingers on the top or actually move your top hand down the cork yep. about halfway down the cork and then you have more propensity to use the the bottom hand rather than the top perfect what um what about a resource i, I know it would you have a like a book um that maybe somebody can learn a little bit more about spay or any other resources oh man <laughs> travis johnson travis his book yeah, his okay. book on on spay casting is amazing. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, e everything you need is in that book. And like, I mean, every time I read that book, I pick out something new that helps me. And uh, you know, I've I've been at it a long time, and it's to find something new like that all the time is pretty amazing. Nice. And, and then lessons, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Having you, a, a yeah having a second set of eyes makes a big difference. Like, I mean, a lot of guys will go out and practice, but if you're practicing the same mistake over and over and over, you're just making yourself worse overall. <laughs> right. How, how well could you, uh, not that this is the way you should do it, but how well could you, if you video, you know, took a video of yourself casting and you, and, and you were watching somebody's video, how, how accurately could you analyze that cast? Uh, pretty good now. Okay. Uh, it used to be that I would video myself and I had no idea what was going on, but now I've, I've got a different understanding definitely. And I have helped people, um, just by them sending me videos, you know, through, uh, Facebook or Instagram, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but you know, it, it really is what you put into it. Like I've given lessons to people that by the end of the lesson, it, it made a big difference, but they didn't go out and practice what I taught them and even like I would write out, you know, what they need to work on and they never did it. And, uh, so they were back again the next year, <laughs> yeah, exactly. which is, is good that way. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd rather the people get something out of it. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. Cool. What about on, yeah. um, you know, as far as, you know, they're learning the same, what, what, what do you recommend? Somebody comes to you, they, they fish with you, they, you teach them how to cast when they go back home and say, they're not going to fish again with you until a year later. How often do you tell them they need to work on that spay cast to make sure they keep improving? Well, the more you put into it, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. I I've been working with a fellow for a year and a half now who, when I met him, he, uh, 
he couldn't he couldn't speak asked basically and he listened to me uh you know as far as year wise and line length and stuff like that and i i you know i would he would come where i would be practicing and he'd cast and i'd give him some some tips and that and long story short within a year and a half he's like you know in the area i would say he's the second best caster oh wow yeah he's retired and he goes out every morning faithfully and casts and uh you know like i mean he's he's my buddy lyle now and Hmm. uh he's like i mean he's you know had ups and downs the whole way through but he's definitely on the, the upward swing so it just goes to show like i mean he's he's at what you know where he is in a year and a half is what took me 10 years to get to to even have a comprehension of it now and another thing when i'm teaching is i i'm always questioning people so that um they understand why something happens that they can do a lot of self-analyzing and i think that's really important in teaching uh casting so that when you know you don't have an instructor available you can understand you can fix your own casting. So that that's a big part of what I do also. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Before I let you get out of here, I just want to check uh, flies. If, if you're heading out this, uh, you know, uh, September, October to start fishing up there, what are, do you have a go-to pattern or two? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, personally, I fish, you know, traditional stuff. Uh, like I said, you know, I fished with Steven last fall and he was fishing more trody type flies, but bigger, yeah, uh, like bigger stone flies and stuff like that. Um, and we both caught fish. Like, I mean, it's, it's hmm. really more a matter of covering the water than a typical okay. pattern. I, I'm not a big believer, like even right now where it's like dry fly time, I, I'm not a big believer in match the hatch here. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's a gazillion caddis on the water. I'm not going to throw the exact same caddis. I throw a no. great big stimulator. And I, f- I find presentation is far more important than actual imitation. Yeah. So that's that's kind of my take here. Yeah. If you have a favorite fly, fish it. Yeah. If you have a confidence fly, fish it. Gotcha. Perfect. Are you using no. tubes tubes up there? Uh, I do in the winter. I use metal tubes, uh-huh. small ones. Uh it's just a real simple rabbit fur with a hackle type ply. Uh-huh. I call it the guide ply because I can tie it in under a minute. There you go. And and uh, yeah, that's what I use in the winter. And the metal <laughs> and the metal tubes just to get get you down just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit, you know, because there's a couple deeper pools that I'll I'll pull those out. But um, I've I've caught fish just with regular flies too. Yeah, same thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, I think, uh, you know, as always, we, uh, we touched on a little bit of everything, but, uh, you know, it, it's <laughs> we were, we were all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, uh, you know, it's such a big topic, obviously, you know, oh, yeah. there's a lot of confusion. I think just, yeah. you know, letting people know that they have a, you know, where to get started, which I think, like you said, is the, always the best advice is find a local guide or your local shop, oh, absolutely. local lesson. Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. always the, the take home. So. Uh, yeah, uh, Bruce, I appreciate you uh, sharing today. Any, you know, if in the next, uh, six to 12 months, anything new coming for you? It sounds like you've got some, well, I guess the, obviously COVID's still going, but are you looking at doing some guiding this fall if it works out? Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I hadn't been in guiding for 
a while, but I was starting to really miss the teaching aspect of it. So I got back up, I got back into it this year with um, a fellow that I met. Uh, so we're uh, Rugged Point Lodge or Columbia River Fly Fishing right now. The website is kind of combined, but it's going to be splitting uh, so that one is fly fishing and one is gear fishing for salmon in the ocean. And um, uh, it's been a really great collaboration. I, I really appreciate Matt and Christy. Um, you know, it's it's nice to meet people that have the same kind of ethics and morals that you have mm-hmm. uh, towards the fishery. And um, yeah, like we had a bunch of trips lined up, uh, you know, with some really great, great clients uh, that I was really disappointed that it didn't pan out because I wanted to meet some of these people, <laughs> some mm-hmm. some authors and oh, wow. some rod makers and yep. stuff like that. Uh, but hopefully this fall, uh, things open up a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it again. Um, especially from a a teaching aspect, I really, uh, you know, I, I love when people get aha moments, you know, the light bulb going off above their head type of deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun. Like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm quite spoiled in that I can go out and fish this anytime I want, but sometimes I don't. (laughs) so when i when i get out with people i get to fish through them you know so i i i like i like to think of it as uh well i remember when i first started guiding here a friend of mine he's like well you you know not everybody can do what you do so you got to figure out how to get these people into fish without doing what you do (laughs) (laughs) yeah without being a a spayorama casting right yeah, so you know it's been interesting over the years. Um, uh, back when I first started, I had a lot of people from Europe, and uh, they they have a, a lot different view of uh, what a guide is than than uh, you know North American people. So um, yeah, it's just been an interesting evolution, and I'm real happy to be back into it again. And uh, cool. in in particular for the teaching aspect, yeah, right. I really missed right. that. Well, if anybody wants to track you down, I guess uh, B Cruck on Instagram is a good place to go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, your best bet. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll direct people that way. And uh, yeah, Bruce, just want to thank you for coming on and sharing everything, your knowledge today. And it's been fun. I've been hearing your names been popping around out there as I've been interviewing some some you know recent guests. So it's been fun to connect with you. And I'll I'll keep in touch. Hopefully, make it up to your neck of the woods sometime too. Yeah. Get get a lesson from you. I'd love to show you around. (laughs) That'd be awesome. I'd love to yeah. love to get up there. So, okay, man, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Dave. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 152. I created this show for you. I love hearing how I'm doing and getting feedback. If you can, it'd be great if you uh, can head over to wetflyswing.com slash members. That's M-E-M-B-E-R-S. And uh, join the group and uh, and let me know how I'm doing. Would love to hear some comments in there if you get a chance. You can ask questions for upcoming guests and just connect with the community. Thanks again for stopping by today to check out the show. I'm looking forward to uh, maybe seeing you soon and catching you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.